The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Today's case was suggested by our lovely listener, Kane. Thanks for reaching out. And if anyone else has a case recommendation, our DMs and our email is always available for you to send those. When a little girl goes missing from her own front yard, the community is shocked to learn the offender is a sinister individual hiding in plain sight. This is the story of Sandra Renee Cantu. Sandra was born on March 8th, 2001 to Maria Chavez and Daniel Cantu. She was the youngest of four children and raised primarily by her mother while her parents processed their divorce and sorted out their custody agreement. Sandra, her mom, her maternal grandparents, and her three older siblings shared a home at the Orchard Estates Mobile Home Park in Tracy, California. For those unfamiliar with California geography, Tracy is about 70 miles south of Sacramento, and it's the second most populated city in the San Joaquin County. Family members described Sandra as an outgoing, bubbly, and friendly second grader who loved to garden with her grandparents and was always eager to help her mom in the kitchen. Sandra was also known for her ability to make friends everywhere she went. Not only did she have a large group of school friends, but she also formed friendships with all of the kids at the Orchard Estates Mobile Home Park. And I'm not exaggerating when I say all of the kids. Whenever Sandra wanted to play, she'd literally go door to door and knock on each one until someone joined her. And with about 100 mobile homes at the park, Sandra had a big group of kids to hang out with. Overall, the mobile home park was family friendly with a basketball court and a pool and considered to be, quote, very safe, unquote, according to the park's manager, Marilyn Zuniga. Sandra's mom, Maria, agreed. According to Maria, her children, including eight-year-old Sandra, were permitted to play outside with the neighborhood kids as long as they followed two rules. Number one, that they stayed on the expansive park property. And number two, that they were home in time for dinner. Similar to how 80s and 90s kids were allowed to play in the neighborhood, but had to be home before the streetlights turned on. I think we can 
or at least some of us can relate to that. And Sandra was super conscientious about following these rules. Her mom would later explain to a local news outlet that Sandra, quote, always has been told not to go outside the mobile home park, and she never has, unquote. But that sense of security was soon shattered by a sinister individual hiding in plain sight. Which brings us to Friday, March 27th, 2009. School lets out and Sandra spends the afternoon at a friend's home in the same mobile home park as her own. A couple hours pass and Sandra heads home around 4 p.m. She drops off her backpack and checks in with her mom and grandparents. She doesn't stay long though. She informs her family she's heading over to another friend's house nearby and That was the last time she was ever seen alive. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Three hours pass. It's now 7 p.m. and Maria's finished cooking dinner, but Sandra still isn't home. Remember, that's one of the rules Sandra has to follow in order to play outside. She has to be home in time for dinner. Maria calls Sandra's friends one after another, looking for her daughter to tell her it's time to come home. But Maria grows more anxious with each phone call as neighbor after neighbor tells her that Sandra isn't there and that they haven't seen Sandra since earlier that afternoon. Not wasting a minute more, Maria searches the park for Sandra more times than she can count, shouting her daughter's name, Sandra, Sandra, Sandra. The lump in her throat and the pit in her stomach grow as the minutes tick by. Maria can't escape the worry that something terrible has happened to Sandra. So she races home and calls 911 at 7.53 p.m. and reports her eight-year-old daughter missing. Tracy police respond immediately. A missing child isn't something they take lightly. The Chavez Cantu home is searched, but police turn up empty-handed. The police then question Maria and the rest of the family. Remember, she lived with her grandparents and siblings. They need a recent photograph of Sandra and want to know what she had been wearing when she was last seen. Maria does just that. She gives them photos of Sandra and describes the pink Hello Kitty shirt and black leggings Sandra was wearing just hours earlier. I don't know about you, but my heart sank when I read that she was wearing a Hello Kitty shirt. It really puts it into perspective how young Sandra was. She was a baby. Having a character like that on your shirt as a young girl, it really is such a reminder that she was just eight years old. Meanwhile, another group of officers canvasses the park. They go door to door, knocking. Eerily similar to what Sandra was known to do after school every day. The neighbors tell the police the same thing they told Maria earlier. They haven't seen Sandra in hours. The seriousness of the situation begins to sink in around the community. Back at Sandra's house, officers learn that Sandra's grandfather recently installed a surveillance camera on the porch, overlooking the road in front of the house and the ramp leading to the entryway. The family turns over the footage without hesitation, and it's quickly analyzed by investigators. Sandra does in fact appear on the recording. They see exactly what I described earlier in the episode. 
Sandra returns home with her backpack around 4 p.m. before leaving shortly afterward in the direction of her friend's home. But then they get some new information. Moments later, Sandra is again seen on the camera. The family later learns that the friend she intended to visit wasn't available, which is why Sandra was en route home. She swings her arms as she skips across the road to her family home, but something catches her eye off camera. So she changes course and heads in the opposite direction of the only exit to the mobile home park, walking out of the frame once and for all. This new information only brings up more questions. What caught Sandra's attention? If she walked in the opposite direction of the park's only exit, then she should still be on the property, right? And if she's not on the property, how did she leave without the camera recording it? Investigators are now even more invested. They need more information about Sandra, her home life, and the family in general. That's when investigators learn Maria and Daniel, Sandra's parents, are actively divorcing and working out a custody agreement. Investigators' attention is now on Daniel, and they want to know, would Daniel Cantu kidnap his own daughter? The family, including Maria, vehemently denies that Daniel had any involvement in Sandra's disappearance. They're convinced it must have been someone else. If you're listening, wondering how they could have been so sure, it turns out that Daniel hadn't been involved in Sandra or any of the kids' lives for a few years at this point. On top of that, Maria insists that it's not in her soon-to-be ex-husband's nature to do something like that. Investigators still need to follow up with this possible lead, so they look into Daniel. Almost immediately, Daniel is ruled out as a potential suspect. Turns out Daniel wasn't even in Tracy at the time of Sandra's disappearance. The weekend arrives and police are no closer to finding Sandra than when they received the 911 call on Friday night. In addition to the local Tracy Police Department and the FBI, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's team of retired law enforcement professionals aids in the search efforts. A total of 230 professional search and rescue volunteers representing 16 government and emergency entities scour every inch of Tracy and the surrounding cities for the next 48 hours. This includes search and rescue dogs, equestrian teams, ATVs, a helicopter from the California Highway Patrol, even divers who search a river miles and miles away from Sandra's home. Sandra's family and thousands of volunteer community members pass out flyers with Sandra's picture and information on it. Local and state news cover the story. I can't emphasize this enough. Seemingly, everyone in California had heard about Sandra's disappearance, and they're eager to help. A $2,000 reward is initially offered for information leading to Sandra's safe return, and it quickly grows to what some sources say is $20,000 and others say is $30,000 with donations from private citizens and local businesses. But despite the manpower and resources, there's still no sign of Sandra. The Chavez Cantu family isn't ready to give up. Instead, they continue to cling to hope and turn to the community for support. They host not one but two candlelight vigils for Sandra on that Saturday and Sunday. The search for Sandra continues for 10 excruciating days. Then on April 6, 2009, a local man named Jose Luis Franco who's performing a routine draining of an irrigation pond nearby, discovers a black Eddie Bauer suitcase floating in the water. A smell emanates from the luggage, but he doesn't go near it. Instead, Jose calls authorities that instant. He later explains to a local news station, quote, 
I called the police immediately because I was very aware of the missing girl. I see it every day on the news and have kids of my own. So it's always on my mind. When I came across the suitcase, it seemed very suspicious, end quote. Law enforcement arrives and soon they confirm Jose's suspicions. Sandra Cantu is no longer missing. Her tiny body has been found having been stuffed into the zipped and tied shut suitcase for days. The Chavez Cantu family's worst fears are now their reality. Sandra is dead. The San Joaquin County pathologist gets straight to work. The toxicology report reveals Sandra had alprazolam in her system at the time of her death. Alprazolam is the generic of Xanax, which is a benzodiazepine meant to relieve symptoms of anxiety and panic disorders. And it's a powerful medication with some serious side effects that include, but aren't limited to, drowsiness, lightheadedness, and dizziness. While the medication is cleared for children Sandra's age in certain circumstances, she was never prescribed the meds and she had absolutely no reason for it to be in her system. Could she have stumbled upon a bottle or found a pill at a neighbor's house and chosen to take it on her own? Sure. I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility. But Sandra wasn't a toddler who'd eat unidentified pills off the floor or purposefully take someone else's medication. She's a child, but at eight years old, she knows better. The rest of the pathologist's findings suggest that someone viciously assaulted Sandra, making the presence of alprazolam appear more and more as if Sandra was drugged. Continuing on with the pathologist's report, he also determined Sandra's injuries to be extensive. She suffered a cut to her lower inner lip, an abrasion on her left elbow, and traumatic injuries to her external genitalia. Albeit horrifying and disturbing, those injuries didn't kill Sandra. The pathologist found a bloodied piece of cloth that had been fashioned into a makeshift noose and tied around Sandra's head. And it's this finding that led to the pathologist's final conclusion that Sandra's cause of death was, quote, homicidal asphyxiation, unquote. Now that the pathologist has done his part, the FBI, remember, they're working in tandem with the local police department. They profiled the offender stating that this individual is most likely a white male, 25 to 40 years old, and with a history of sexual assault. This new information leads authorities to one particular member of the Orchard Estates mobile home park community. Now, this man didn't fit into the age category given by the FBI. However, everything else lined up. According to some sources, he was a known pedophile who had a history with Sandra specifically. This history involved an inappropriate encounter with then six-year-old Sandra two years prior to her disappearance. Did any of the resources give more information about this encounter? They do, and I'll tell you more about it right now. In the summer of 2007, the entire Chavez Cantu family were swimming at the park's on-site pool when a community member in his 60s approached Sandra, touched her face, and then proceeded to kiss her on the mouth. Here's what Sandra's mom, Maria, had to say about the event. Quote, my mother-in-law saw him march over, sweep her hair off her face, and give her a kiss on the lips, unquote. Turns out the man had already been interviewed along with other neighbors because he still lived in the community. And this happened in the first days of the search. But he would now be looked at more carefully by investigators. They bring the man in for questioning, now armed with this information, and they confront him. The man readily admits to the 2007 encounter, referring to it as a, quote, harmless affection, unquote. He then confesses that he does have an attraction to little girls around the ages of nine and 10 years old. 
Sandra was eight, remember? Things don't look good for this man. He's a walking red flag at this point. And unfortunately, police have to let him go and clear him of any involvement. It turns out he has a credible alibi and there's not much police can do besides keep a close eye on him in the future. Once again, investigators are now seemingly back to square one, asking themselves, who killed Sandra Cantu? That's when they begin to acknowledge the number of coincidences surrounding another Orchards Estate mobile home park resident, a 28-year-old woman named Melissa Huckabee, who lived a few doors down from the Chavez Cantu family with her five-year-old daughter and her grandparents. So in order to fully understand these coincidences, we need to go back to the beginning for a moment. Amidst the initial chaos of Sandra's disappearance on Friday, March 27th, Melissa texts Sandra's mom, Maria, telling her, quote, tell the police that I had something stolen today around 4 p.m. I don't know if that makes a difference or not, unquote. Melissa wrestled with the decision to contact Maria because she knew the police were busy, but she couldn't shake the feeling that the two events were linked. Well, it turns out that that something Melissa was referring to was her $200 Eddie Bauer suitcase. The exact suitcase that had entombed Sandra's body for 10 days before its discovery. The suitcase wasn't the only coincidence, though. The day after Sandra's disappearance, Melissa found a handwritten note in her mailbox. The note reads, quote, Cantu locked in stolen suitcase, thrown in water on Bachetti Road and Whitehall Road. Signed, witness, unquote. She alerts authorities who again find it unusual, but they seem to doubt the veracity of the note believing that Melissa appears to be nothing more than an attention seeker. Investigators do their due diligence, searching her car and analyzing the letter. It's obvious to them that Melissa did indeed write the note herself, despite her poorly executed attempts to disguise her handwriting. And now we're back to April 2009, after Sandra's body is discovered and the other possible suspect has been cleared. Investigators put all their focus on Melissa. They bring her in for questioning and things aren't looking good for her her suitcase is what was used to conceal Sandra's remains. So let's discuss Melissa Huckabee's version of events. Melissa now realizes she's caught and begins to open up to investigators, telling them that Sandra had visited her the day she went missing. Sandra and Melissa's daughter were friends, so it wouldn't have been unusual for Sandra to have spent time at Melissa's home. But this is the first time anyone has heard about the encounter. She tells investigators she initiated a game of hide-and-seek with Sandra and her five-year-old daughter. When Melissa suggested Sandra get in the suitcase and jump out to scare the five-year-old. According to Melissa, Sandra agreed without hesitation, getting into the suitcase before Melissa zipped it up. She continues that she had to go in the house to get her phone and forgot that Sandra was inside the suitcase. She said when she got to her grandfather's church where she taught Sunday school, she remembered. So she unzipped the suitcase and found Sandra's lifeless body. Melissa said she tried to do CPR. She also said she took a small towel, wet it, and placed it on Sandra's forehead to cool her off. Melissa was freaked out and didn't know what to do. And according to this incident report, it's written, quote, her head was spinning out of control and she was not thinking straight. So she decided to dump the suitcase into a pond. With this in mind, investigators go back to Sandra's grandfather's surveillance camera. And it's here they see Melissa, eight minutes after Sandra vanished from the screen, driving out of the mobile home park in the direction of her grandfather's church, Clover Road Baptist Church. Now for a word from one of this week's sponsors. 
investigators do more digging and they find out that as Melissa was leaving the mobile home park, she phoned the manager to report her black suitcase stolen in front of her trailer. Then another surveillance tape shows Melissa driving away from the church and then returning to the church 30 minutes later. In that 30-minute window, a retired Marine and his wife ran into Melissa and her SUV at the irrigation pond where Sandra's body would be later discovered. They asked her if everything was all right, and she had told them that she stopped at the side of the road to urinate. The prosecution's summary of the case doesn't support Melissa's story. If you remember, she says that she had convinced Sandra to get into the suitcase and had forgotten that she was in there, only to discover Sandra's lifeless body when she got to the church. But if you remember, we now have records of Melissa calling the manager of the mobile home park and telling her that her suitcase was stolen. One might argue that this shows a lot more premeditation. Absolutely. So with all of this in mind, investigators go straight to the church, where If you remember, Melissa worked as a Sunday school teacher, and it's here they find a rolling pin with a bent handle and a bloody smudge. That blood contained Sandra Cantu's DNA. They also discovered one of the blinds was missing part of its draw cord, which the FBI determined to be consistent with the cord used to tie the suitcase shut. Then there was a prescription bottle of alprazolam found in Melissa's purse, which we know to have been in Sandra's body at the time of her death. Melissa was charged with one count of murder with special circumstances of rape with a foreign object, lewd conduct with a child under 14, and murder in the course of kidnapping. The special circumstances mean that Melissa, if convicted, could have faced the death penalty or life in prison without the possibility of parole. She pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and kidnapping with enhancements. The sexual assault charge was dropped as part of the plea deal she made with prosecutors to avoid the death penalty. In exchange, she was sentenced to 25 years to life without the possibility of parole. To this day, Melissa Huckabee denies having sexually assaulted Sandra, and she actually had the audacity to ask Sandra's mother for forgiveness. She said, quote, she did not suffer and I did not sexually molest her. I'm asking you, Maria, for your forgiveness. I can't imagine forgiving someone who harmed my daughter. I hope someday you can forgive me. On top of that, Melissa Huckabee sobbed and trembled throughout all of the court proceedings. She apologized to Sandra's family multiple times saying, quote, I should not have taken her from you. I owe you an explanation, but I still cannot understand why I did what I did. This is a question I will struggle with for the rest of my life. Sandra's more than her murder, so I don't want to end her story there. Coincidentally, we are recording the day before what would have been her 21st birthday. And... I just have to wonder what kind of woman she would have become, who she would have married or who she would have become friends with, what she would have done with her life. It's so serendipitous that we ended up recording the day before her birthday. And I don't think the universe is making a mistake with that. It makes me wonder so much about who she would be today at 21. And I can't imagine what that translates to for her family who's about to celebrate her 21st birthday without her here. And that feels like the perfect place to end Sandra's story. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on TikTok and Instagram. Seriously, go check out our TikTok. We just started a new series for Women's History Month where we're reading out of Anne Chin's Bad Girls Throughout History. Super fun. 
You'll also find us at themurderdiariespod at gmail.com and themurderdiariespodcast.com. Go get your merch. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.